Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Pride going before destruction. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode 16 of this podcast. This one will be called Apostasy Part 4, Roman Catholicism. Now, I want to make this very clear. I believe that there are true believers who are Catholic. So this is not an attack on all Catholics. This is an attack on the system and the, uh, you know, the, the theology within it that uh it's and and i I hope to show um that this is you know that there's a lot of non-biblical beliefs and traditions within catholicism uh do i I think people that go to roman catholic church can be saved but uh i've known of some that were called out of it no one told them to they just began to realize when their study of scripture and the holy spirit was working on them um, and they left. Now, uh, this is not just as I've. This is the. This is not the end of the apostasy series. There's going to be some Protestant movement uh, churches that I will be um, talking about in future episodes. So, um, don't think that that I'm just attacking the Catholics. There's going to be others moving forward. Now, sort of in connection with what we're going to be talking about is uh, in this coffee house type um, st- uh, conversation group called What is Truth that I started at my church. We talked about on December 12th, um, Christmas traditions and their roots. And the questions of what Christmas traditions are actually from the Bible and what isn't, and is any of it rooted in paganism, and is that good or bad? If you take a pagan tradition and Christianize it, is that good or bad? So let's talk about this. I looked some of these up, and I want to first clarify that um, depending on which website you look up, you're going to get different answers. And um, I will say this. There are people that will take um, the position that Christianity copied paganism that it was just, you know, uh, like the Zeitgeist program. There's others that say that Christianity didn't copy it, but they um, Christianity was its own thing, but then it began to, to pervert itself by mixing in paganism with it, and thus it can be confusing with the traditions that we have now. We kind of think that they're part of the Bible when they're not. And then another group uh, tends to downplay all of that, um, there's some that many that suggest that historically speaking, there's no evidence for a lot of these claims of ancient paganism before Christ, that a lot of that was made up in the last three or 400 years. Uh, so I'm not smart enough to know which is true, but I do have a conclusion on this topic. And, um, l- let me quickly go through some of these Christmas traditions and the things that I've found. December 25th, uh, Saturnalia, held in mid-December, is an ancient Roman pagan festival honoring the agricultural god Saturn. Um, Saturnalia celebrations are the source of many of the traditions we now associate with Christmas. Um, Most popular holiday in the ancient Roman calendar derived from older farming rituals of midwinter and the winter solstice. Um, I can read more on that. Biblically speaking, there is no indication that Christ was born in the winter. (laughs) Uh, So um, this idea that um, Jesus was just another December 25th birth uh, of many other pagan gods, which uh, I think has been debunked as far as ancient pagan gods all being born on December 25th anyway. 
But um, there's, I think, one that's really close, but the rest of them aren't. Uh, but there's no evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th. Now, I think it's possible that the uh, pagans ha- uh, worshipped, or not worshipped, but they celebrated uh, sun worship uh, or the uh, revival of the sun after the winter solstice is a very possible thing. And then later on, they be- they took that as they Christianized and compared it to the sun, sun being born, uh, the son of God or something like that. So that's a possibility. Uh, but in, as far as the Bible's concerned, there's no evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, Christmas tree. Long before the arrival of Christianity, northern Europeans used plants and trees to decorate their homes to celebrate festivals and coincide with winter solstice. The Christmas tree that we recognize today, however, is a tradition that dates much later to the beginning of the 17th century in Strasbourg. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I there's more to read here, but I'll just say that, um, that the fir tree that we use is likely because it's winter and it, it's one of the few trees that is able to stay green during the winter. Uh, so that kind of makes sense. I don't, uh, some people connect it to a passage in Jeremiah 10, where they um, where they would decorate a tree with gold and silver, and it was connected to idol worship. And some people think that the Christmas tree is just an extent of that. Um, however, it is unclear. I don't know that we can prove that. Um, uh, candles. It is assumed that the Greeks adopted the Egyptian tradition of celebrating the birth of a god, they, like many other pagan cultures, thought that days of major change, such as these birthdays, welcomed evil spirits. They lit candles in response to those spirits, almost as if they represented a light in the darkness. This implies that birthday celebrations started as a form of protection. Um, biblically speaking, um, candles are used you know, in the uh, tabernacle or whatever. So it's not wrong to use candles. Uh, If we repurpose the meaning of them, is it wrong? Like when our church would have a candlelight service every every Christmas, or it was actually the 23rd, so we call it the Eve of Christmas Eve service, we would uh, end the service where everybody holds up a candle and we hold it up and it lights up the room the room is always dimly lit and the sermon is usually about being a light to the world as uh, it states in Matthew 5:14 and si- through 16 and some people might have a problem uh with this because we're taking a tradition uh that's pagan and christianizing it uh but I'll talk about that more in a second Gifts. Gift giving has its roots in pagan rituals held during the winter. When Christianity folded these rituals into Christmas, the justification for bearing gifts was redirected to the wise men, the Magi, who gave gifts to the infant Jesus. Uh, and there's more here, but uh, but giving is also biblical a biblical concept. First Corinthians nine six through eight. So it's not wrong to give gifts. Now, some people don't believe in giving gifts on Christmas because it, it they suggest that it's passed down from ancient paganism uh, or this winter solstice giving, gift giving. Uh, the white elephant. I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, in New England, it's so it's often called a Yankee swap. I'd never heard of that. In the South, it's Dirty Santa. I'd never heard of that even though I live in Texas. But across most of North America, the party game where participants trade and steal presents is known as a white elephant gift exchange. The term white elephant has been used since the la- at least the 1800s to refer to a less than desirable gift. According to legend, the tradition of white elephant gifts began long ago when the king of Siam, now Thailand, gave an, a, an actual white elephant to anyone he disliked. Uh, these are, you know, they tended to be, um, it was an albino elephant, actually. 
um, they tend to be very difficult to and, and expensive to to keep. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. And I put a Bible verse here, Matthew 7, 9, 9 and 10, uh, which is basically where Jesus said, To which of your sons, if they asked for bread, would you give them a stone? Or for a fish, would you give them a snake? You know, <laughs> I thought that was funny. But uh, elves. Elves, fairies, and leprechauns are all closely related to folklore um, and more Norse mythology. Um, now, they kind of... Uh, they're related to, they represent pranks and mischief. Um, there is some people that suggest that elves and fairies and leprechauns were actual demons that would appear to people, and they became folklore later on. Uh, I'm not sure. So, um, But obviously there's no connection to that with the birth of Christ in the Bible. Santa Claus... Uh, this was kind of interesting uh, studying about Saint Nick, who was a real, apparently a real person that w was very charitable, um, probably a Christian, and uh, and then that became sort of uh, he sort of became celebrated later as a very giving person. Um, but there's also this uh, uh, Father Christmas character that was more magical that they sort of mixed Saint Nick and Father Christmas who became uh, together became Santa Claus uh, something you know of that nature uh, perhaps the thing that bothers me the most is telling kids that Santa Claus is real and the magical side of it but again this I don't want to that's just my conviction I'm not telling other people what to think on that reindeer um, in 1812, American author Washington Irving refers to St. Nicholas as riding over the top of trees in that self-same wagon, uh, whereby his yearly pre presence to children in the revised version of a complete history of New York written under the pseudonym Diedrich Knickerbocker. Uh, yet no mention is made of what propels the wagon. Um, Anyway, that's kind of interesting. The first written account of reindeer in association with the legend of Santa Claus occurred in 1821 that year uh, by a printer who published uh, a New Year's present to the little ones. Um, I assume that reindeer was used because they're close to the North Pole. And I, I, I assume that the North Pole is became tradition because it's where the snow and cold weather is. So you know at least in the northern hemisphere so uh <laughs> so it's kind of connected to winter bells um bells are rung during christmas to proclaim the arrival of the season and the announce of the birth of jesus the ringing of bells can also be traced back to pagan winter celebrations used to drive out evil spirits now i wanted to look in the bible to see if bells are ever used because they've become a prominent part of church tradition uh, bells in the in the steeples and all that um, the only thing I could find was the priests were to wear bells around their neck uh, when they go in and out of the holy place and uh, by the way it says nothing about angels getting wings <laughs> I'm not sure where that tradition came from but uh, lights um, Christmas lights. I, I obviously uh, believe that those are an extension of candles when electric light bulbs were invented. Um, caroling. Like so many other Christmas traditions, carols have their roots in pagan rituals appropriated by the nonsent Christian church. Uh, when in the 4th century it officially named Christmas the celebration of Christ Jesus' birth. Um, now I'll just say that... Um, Singing is not wrong. <laughs> so songs can be used in pagan or Christian circles. And so, you know, uh, in Psalms, the Psalms are full of singing, right? And so um, to take, if even if singing around the winter solstice was a 
tradition and then we started singing about Jesus. Uh, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. But in conclusion, um, I used a passage here, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13, which has to do with uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul talking about how to him, the idol is just a piece of wood. It, it's neither good nor bad. It's just a dead thing. And it doesn't hurt the meat. <laughs> but to other people, it is a stumbling block. And that could either mean that they used to um, worship the idol and they're tempted to see that as a deity. And thus, so they don't stumble, they don't eat the meat sack, they stay away from it. But others, it could be a stumbling block only because they associate it with evil. Um, I would compare this to, say, yoga, you know, uh, part of the New Age movement and Hinduism. And some people um, associate the exercises with that. And obviously the uh, meditation that goes with it is bad. Some people try to say, well, we're meditating on Christ. Um, but again, I, I would say that's kind of like eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's, it's uh, about conviction and how you use it. And if you're, as long as you're not doing anything spiritually dangerous, um, and I'm not a, an expert on meditation, but the exercises themselves, I don't know if I would consider to be a problem. Um, but again, when it comes to Christmas, that's the main topic here uh, in this intro, is uh, conviction. What is your conviction? And I think we should respect one another. Is it right or wrong? Now, there's debate on whether or not um, all the uh, Catholic traditions were based on Roman paganism and Christianized. Um, but if they were, is that good or bad? And if, it, you know, like we're not, if you're no longer worshiping an idol, but you take some of those same traditions and repurpose them to mean godly things, uh, that's the question. Is That's kind of a gray area. Is that good or bad? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of my conclusion on this is uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols is a good example of, of this concept. And if you're convicted about it, you shouldn't do it. If you're not convicted about it, um, it says to respect those who are, and thus when you are with them, you know, try to respect their their uh, conviction and try not to do it around them. And if you are convicted about it, uh, I would say respect those around you. It's okay to have a conversation about it and say, um, this is why I'm convicted about it, you know. Um, but if, if they don't agree, and maybe they will come around, but, you know, if they don't, just respect them. Don't bring your legalism to them if it's a gray area and it's not clearly laid out in scripture. Um, but we need to respect one another as much as we can to try to stay united on these gray areas. And uh, that's kind of my thoughts on this topic. So before we continue, I would like to play a funny bit from my childhood once again, another section of recordings from me as a kid. So Hope you enjoy this. Made by Robbie and Eli. What's that? It sounds like a booger farting. Oh, yeah! <laughs>
again that was me and my cousin back when we were little tiny kids and yeah kind of dumb but <laughs> sort of fun I guess uh, those sound effects uh, if those of you old enough to remember cassette tapes my friend would or my cousin would hit the pause uh, and pause it and unpause it really really fast like a bunch of times to kind of get some of that, <laughs> and I could never do it like he did. So, um, yeah, so let's move along uh, on Catholicism. Um, I'm going to use some um, audio from Mike Winger, who is one of my favorite apologist pastors on YouTube. Um, you know, he, this video is probably over an hour long on his uh but I've edited it down, and I will leave a link for the entire uh, video uh, for this one. Um, but just another guy that I like want to plug. So that's the only reason I picked it. I think there's others that do good jobs on it as well. So here is Mike Winger. We've already pretty much, using history and scripture, blasted away the single pillar of Catholicism, which is their claim to authority. And once you realize that the claim to authority is not historical, you realize that all the other doctrines that then they build on that claim don't have any claim over you. And it's very liberating. Many uh, 
former Catholics found it extremely liberating to be able to just open the Bible and just believe it and not add anything to it. Well, tonight what we're going to do is deal with um, false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, the things that come out of their, well, really out of their gospel. We've already explained how the gospel of Rome is a gospel of faith plus works. Well, once you add works to the gospel, it's natural to ask, which works? I mean, if you're going to tell me I have to be saved by faith plus works, then you're going to have to then tell me what works are going to save me. And that's what Rome has done. In fact, it's given quite a few. You may have heard of the seven sacraments. A sacrament is kind of a fancy word. In Catholicism, the word sacrament is a means of grace. Or if I can put it more in my own language, it's a way that you can earn grace. You do the sacrament and then you earn pieces of grace or little bits of grace. In Catholicism, grace is given out piecemeal, little by little, as you you go each time to mass or each time you do penance, that kind of thing. You get a little bit more grace each time. Um, You may have heard of indulgences. Raise your hand if you've heard of indulgences. And I'll bet you at least some of you thought, indulgences, Mike, that ended years and years ago, like in the Reformation. Like they quit it. It's actually, that's not true. Catholicism has indulgences even today. Um, They've been used since the Reformation and on. And yeah, certain forms of indulgences were frowned upon after the Reformation because there was, there was certain guys that were saying, ah, every time a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. And there was this kind of extremely silly version of indulgences, but that, that's not quite what it's hap- what's happening anymore. And Catholicism has, in America, in the United States of America, has downplayed indulgences. But you have to understand something. If you have a gospel of grace plus works, well, the plus works part, that's the indulgences part. In- indulgences is essential to Catholicism. And it's wrong to a believer in Christ to believe in such a thing. So let's talk about these seven sacraments. The seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, seven means of grace, or seven ways in which you can get more grace into your life because you don't have enough with just uh, just Jesus. The first one is baptism. And that bit, baptism is generally going to take place at infancy. And you might be like, why do they baptize infants? I don't understand this. I thought, I thought it was a believer's baptism. Why do we baptize infants in the Catholic Church? And the reason is because of what they think baptism does. In Catholicism, baptism doesn't get rid of, uh, of all your sins. It gets rid of original sin. It gets rid of that Adam and Eve inherited sinfulness. And that's why they're willing to baptize an infant, because it's not getting rid of infants' sins. It's getting rid of the sins inherited through Adam and Eve on that infant. This is what a Catholic views as being born again, or at least in Catholic theology. When you get baptized, you are therefore born again. However, that doesn't make any change of your life or any change of the way you live or anything like that, as we would suggest as born-again Christians, born-again as a a life transformation experience of Jesus Christ. It's more of a, um, just a declaration. Okay, you're baptized, you're born again. But, so baptism, baptism is, according to Vatican II, it is only a beginning, but it is necessary for salvation. Now, what does the Bible say about baptism? Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. Philip is on the road. He meets this eunuch. He shares the, 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 the teachings of Isaiah 53 with him. The eunuch puts his faith in Christ, and then he wants to be baptized. And so we pick up in verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so this is where we get the phrase believer's baptism. Because this baptism symbolizes your faith and trust in Christ, your identification with his death and resurrection, turning from the world to follow Jesus in your life. And so if you're not, you know, having that position of faith, then it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of hypocritical to do a baptism then. So we believe in uh, believer's baptism. Now, there is one passage in the New Testament that talks about a man and his entire household getting uh, baptized. However, what the Catholic Church does with this is they say his whole household got baptized. That would include infants. But this assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that his household included infants. The second sacrament, the second means of grace is called penance. P-E-N-A-N-C-E, penance. Penance, you might think of this as going to confession. Going to confession. You go to a priest and you explain your, your sins. And this deals with two different kinds of sins, venial and mortal sins. Venial sins are the sins that you have to pay for, but you're still saved. But I've got to pay. I've got to pay for what I did here and there. And I've got to pay for it not only just in this life, but in the next life, 
in, in purgatory in that location. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Mortal sins are sins which, if you commit, you actually lose grace and you lose your salvation at the moment you commit a mortal sin, according to Catholicism. And then you go to the priest and you say, hey, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been this long since my last confession. I've committed venial sins. This is them. This is what they were. This is how many times. Or I committed mortal sin. This is the mortal sin. Here's how many times I did it. Da, da, da. And then uh, penance involves this. You have to be contrite. You have to have contrition or humility or, you know, sort of like a sorrow over sin. You have to have confession to a priest. It's got to be to a priest. Confession to someone else doesn't count. Um, only the church, according to Roman Catholicism, has the power to forgive. That's why you've got to go to the priest. And here's the theology in Rome. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In Roman teaching, there's something called the treasury of merit. And I want you to imagine, if you can, a giant bank vault full of good works. And the good works are Jesus's good works, Mary's good works, and then thirdly, the works of this, the good works of the saints. Not of all Christians, just specifically the, like the canonized saints. They're good works. And that's like locked up and secured. And the only way to access this treasury of merit is through the keys that the Catholic Church has. The keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16. So I go to the priest and I say, here, I've sinned, I've done this, I've done this. And he officially reaches up with the keys, opens the, opens the, the vault, takes some of the good works out of Jesus, Mary, and the saints, and he applies some of it to me to bring me back into a state of grace. So contrition over sin, confession, and the third part is following the instructions of the priest. Following the instructions of the priest. Typically, this involves praying like 10 Our Fathers or 10 Hail Marys. Um, praying the rosary is a work. It merits grace. Praying the rosary every day is going to try to help keep you out of purgatory. Uh, sometimes this requires a religious pilgrimage to a shrine of Christ or Mary or wearing painful clothing. I have a feeling that the, the things the priest requires in the United States are a lot easier than the things the priest require. If you go down to South America, I think they're probably more strict and ask for more just because we're more of an individualistic and lazy cultures. <laughs> so they don't want to put too much on us, I guess. But what's interesting is the priest, if, you, if you've ever been to a confessional, then the priest has a purple stole that he wears. That, I don't know if you know this, that is meant to signify his authority, purple being the color of royalty. And he has this purple stole to say, I, am, I have the authority to forgive your sins. So if your mortal sins have been committed, you get sort of, you get brought back, you get saved again. When you, when you do this confession. And if it's venial sins, then those get washed away. So there's a problem with this. In fact, there's several that probably have already occurred to you. In fact, in fact, for Bible-believing Christians, just hearing the theology of the Catholic Church is enough to get you to go, yeah, that's just, wow, that's weird. That's so not what I read in the Bible. There is no Roman Catholic priesthood in the Bible. You never see people in the book of Acts going to a priest and confessing their sins. We are all priests, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and verse 9. We're all priests, every one of us. There is one particular verse that I hear used by Catholic theologians to promote the idea of having to go to a priest to get forgiven. And it's James 5.16. It says, Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, you can push the priesthood onto this, but it's like, it's like a square peg in a round hole. It's, this is not about the priesthood. Confessing my trespasses one to another. Just open up and talk to each other. Any of you confessing to any of you fulfills this. It's talking about body ministry where we're all priests in the kingdom of God and we all have the ability to minister to each other, pray for each other. Your prayers are as powerful as mine or as powerful as anybody else's. According to the book of Hebrews, and I strongly encourage reading it if, if this is a challenging concept for you at all, we go straight to God through Jesus. That's end of story. We go straight to God through Jesus. Do not let anyone get between you and God. Now, the third, <clears throat> the third uh, sacrament, the third way of getting grace is known as Mass. M-A-S-S. Mass. Mass involves the re-presenting of the sacrifice of Jesus to the Father in order to appease God's wrath and cover people's sins. Mass, which you might think of as communion, is different. In fact, in the Catholic Church, it's called transubstantiation. And what you have to know about this is Mass is a means of grace. Remember, grace is given out piecemeal in the Catholic Church. So Mass, this belief in transubstantiation, is where they say that the body and the blood of Christ are literally present. 
in the cup, and in the bread. And their belief is that when the priest, and you have to have the priest to do this, when he holds up the host and he holds up the bread and the cup and he says the special prayer ritual, what happens is this bread physically transforms into the actual physical body of Jesus Christ. It is now human flesh. And that the cup actually transforms into the physical blood of Jesus Christ. It is actually human blood. This is at the center of Catholicism. This is the most important, probably, of all of the sacraments, is Mass. This, according to Catholicism, is necessary for salvation. You can't be saved without this. Now, notice this. This is not merely in remembrance. That's what Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. Those are the words he used when he talked about communion. But this, this is Jesus. Like, this is actually Jesus. You're holding Jesus in your hands. You're putting him in your mouth, and you're eating him. This sounds really strange, and and it is very strange. And here's the problem. It evolved over time. It wasn't, in fact, for instance, until over a thousand years later, about a thousand years later, when all of a sudden they started worshiping the Eucharist and actually doing this in around 1000 AD. And they started to actually bow down, and they started to put it in a special vessel. And then they put out these decrees that said, we're not going to give this to children anymore. We can't give it to children because they might spill the blood. In fact, we'll give the bread to the people, but we will not give the blood to the people because they might spill the blood. And it became this very worry and concern about the exaltation of the actual substances, you know. And it totally forgets the Jewishness of the disciples of Christ. Can you imagine if the apostles seriously thought they were eating human flesh? Do you think they would have eaten? No. What does the Bible say? It says specifically, do not drink blood. Do not partake of blood. In Acts chapter 15, they had a whole discussion about the issue of blood, and they reiterate, don't drink blood. And you don't hear them say, except, of course, the Eucharist. That's an exception to the rule. It's just, don't drink blood. Don't do this. The the disciples were Jewish. But as the Catholic Church moved more and more away from the Jewish context, it was easier and easier for them to interpret the Bible through the lens of their own rituals instead of through the lens of what it actually is. Passover is where this came from, right? When we do our communion celebration, it is something we've inherited from Judaism. It was the Passover celebration representing them coming out of Egypt. And you know the story in Exodus, right? Beautiful story. Every single part of that meal was symbolic. They would eat bitter herbs, like horseradish and stuff, like nasty tasting herbs to remind them of the bitterness of the bondage of being in Egypt. They would eat this lamb that had been burned, representing judgment. They would eat it, because it had its blood spilled so that they would have be passed over and all this other stuff. They'd eat the bread, they'd take the cup, and everything was symbolic. Every aspect of it was symbolic. So Jesus, at that meal, we read about this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the meal where he says, hey, this cup, which had all sorts of other symbolic meaning, he then takes it and tells them what it's really all about. It's the new cup, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This bread, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't think that they understood him to mean that it was physical. And they they would have at least had a discussion about it. Whoa, hold on. I mean, how could Peter later on, when God gives him a vision and acts, hey, get up, kill and eat. There's like a pig. And he's like, get up and kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, Lord, I've never eaten or touched anything unclean. Well, that wouldn't be true if he had had eaten blood and had human flesh. I mean, this it's not a clear teaching of scripture. It's just a clear teaching of Catholic theology. There is one passage in particular that they like to use, and it is um, in John chapter 6. Now, you might be familiar with John 6. This is the passage where Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, you will not, you will not see the kingdom and all this. And he says it seriously, really like, whoa, he seems really intense. But what I want us to know is this. The bookmarks, the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage. You got to read the whole thing in context, right? The beginning and end help us to see that he does not mean I'm literally going to make you eat my flesh and blood. All right, we're going to take a break here, and hopefully this all makes you think. Um, I'm not telling you what to think, and I don't think Mike Winger is telling you what to think, but to encourage you to read the scripture and pray through and not let any human being tell you what the truth is. But read the Bible. That's our source for truth as a Christian. All right, so I'm going to play a quick song here by my brother, a different brother than I played before, which was uh, Hendrick. This one is called uh, a band called Comrade that broke up long ago as they got family and children, just like Hendrick did. 
And this is a song called Make Break. So once again, that is Comrade, the song Make Break, and the websites that are on the CD case do not exist, (laughs) so I don't know if you can find these songs on iTunes or Spotify or anything, but anyway, so that's my brother, hope you liked it. So uh, back to Mike Winger. But what I want us to know is this, the bookmarks, the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, you got to read the whole thing in context, right? The beginning and end help us to see that he does not mean I'm literally going to make you eat my flesh and blood. So in John chapter 6 verse 35, beginning the discussion, he says this. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Yet how many times is the mass provided? You could, as a, as a Catholic, as a good Catholic, you could get the mass and eat the Eucharist a thousand times. Easy. You're constantly needing it again. It was, at least for a long time in the Catholic Church, it's been considered a mortal sin not to go and experience mass, to skip out on it. <laughs> you've got to do this. You've got to do this. Not only will you not have your sins covered, you'll actually be incurring more sin upon yourself. I'm the bread of life. He comes to me, he's never going to hunger. It, it's not physical bread here. He's talking about spiritually speaking. I'm the bread of life. This is consistent with all of the, all that Jesus says in John. In John, in chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He's speaking of a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. And he has this long thing where he tries to get Nicodemus to realize it's a spiritual thing. In John 4, he tells the woman at the well, I'll give you living water. And she's like, oh good, tell, give me this water so I don't have to come back here and fill up my bucket all the time. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual truths. You know, he's trying to explain to her. And here in John 6, he says he's the bread of life and you come to him and he'll, you'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. It's all spiritual truths. And the end of the passage, John chapter 6, verse 63, he reiterates this in case you thought he was speaking purely literally. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And this is in context of this. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He's talking about spiritual truths. Now, spiritual truths aren't less than physical truths. In fact, they're elevated as something more important because they're eternal. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, speaking of the Old Testament system, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same offerings which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the biblical view is this, that you, yes, sanctification is an ongoing process. That's my character transformation. But the forgiveness of my sins, that was taken care of one time by one offering. He's perfected me forever. When I came to know this, it blew me away. My Christian life, before I was studying the scriptures more, reading the Bible and just understanding that Jesus paid it all, before I got that, I would sin and feel so beat up and I would go to the Lord and I felt like I needed the Holy Spirit to sort of remind me that God still loved me, to kind of affirm that he's still there for me, that I'm not lost. And as I studied, I read Ephesians and I read Galatians and I read Hebrews and I'm like, hey, he paid it all. He made a one-time payment for all sin. This is a huge blessing and man, it's a weight of guilt off my shoulders, but not in Catholicism. Well, the, the fourth sacrament is called confirmation. And uh, this occurs when a bishop, a kid comes, you know, coming of age, and the bishop lays his hands on the head of the Catholic, signifying that they are coming of age. And that's considered one of the sacraments. Um, do you have to do confirmation in order to be saved? No, but it's a means of grace. Number five, the fifth one is matrimony, marriage. It is a big deal if you're Catholic to have a Catholic wedding because it is a sacrament. The sixth one is holy orders. Holy orders is kind of a confusing sacrament because you're like, how, does, how do I do this? What are holy orders? Well, this is the priests, the bishop, the deacons, the offices in the church. In, in Catholicism, there's a strong difference between what they call the clergy and the laity. Laity is a fancy word for people. The normal people and the clergy or the, the official like, we're the, we're the servants you know, of God. Whereas in Christianity, we say, hey, we've all got gifts of the Spirit. Mine happens to be teaching. Yours is different, but this, we're all on the same plane. I mean, we're all just, we're all believers. We're all disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do the sacrament of holy orders? Well, you don't do it. You just need it to be done for you. You need these guys. Like, if I don't have a priest to invoke the body and blood of Jesus, then I don't get the Eucharist. If I don't have a priest to do confession and give me penance, then I'm not going to be able to have the sacrament of penance. So that's why you need holy orders. It enables all these other things. And this is where the Catholic Church has, has come along and said, hey, apart from the Catholic Church, no one can be saved. And uh, that it's the only ark of salvation. And if you don't enter in, you're going to perish in the flood. And it goes on. Even in 1965, though, something very different happened. Vatican II happened, the new council, with sort of a new twist and spin on doctrine. And you and me, evangelical believers, were upgraded from anathematized heretics to separated brethren. And there is now a shift in the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, while uh, Pope Paul VI, you guys remember him, he was the Pope for most of our lives. Unfortunately, he also said Muslims worshiped the one true God along with Buddhists and he made other kind of strange pronouncements. 
without actually defining what they meant or answering any questions about what they meant. So it was like, are you saying the Buddhists are saved? Like they can be, oh, and just floated away and didn't really tell anybody what that meant. So this is the new um, direction of the Catholic Church. Remember, Catholicism is changing, changing, changing. Well, it changes with the times. And right now, under Pope Francis, the newest pope, Catholicism is getting more and more what's called ecumenical. Or the idea here is to, to um, rather than go us four and no more, like let's tighten up our reins, we're the Catholics. That was the last pope, actually. Pope um, Benedict Sixteenth, I think it was. And he was Bishop Ratzinger before he became pope. And he retired very shortly after becoming the pope. He was actually a theologian and he was kind of like shoring up, hey, no, this is what we believe. This is what Catholicism is. But then he retired and Pope Francis came in. And Pope Francis, he's not really into theology that much. He's like, just throws open his arms and someone says something about atheists. And he goes, eh, who am I to judge? And like never in the history of the Catholic Church has a pope said, who am I to judge? Because that's kind of what it means to be pope, right? <laughs> and so people are, but he's not explaining his statements. He just makes these statements. He's really trying hard to bring Protestants back into the Catholic Church. Uh, pope Francis has declared recently, the Reformation is over. The, the Protestantism is unnecessary, and and he's he's really reaching out. He's actually making some Catholic theologians very upset and doing things like he just recently named a building in in Rome after Martin Luther. And in 2017, him and some other people are supposedly we'll see if this happens going to sign an agreement that says that they all have basically the same gospel, which we know after you've gone through this series that we don't we don't have the same gospel. So it's basically a, it's built on a lie, and that's the problem with the ecumenical movement is. We pretend we agree when we really don't. So that's holy orders. Uh, the seventh and final of these seven sacraments is the anointing of the sick or of the dying, or you may have heard the phrase last rites. This is to resolve mortal sins and hopefully to help them avoid purgatory or at least avoid as much purgatory. Now, speaking of, of this, I think this leads us to a natural discussion of what on earth is purgatory? Purgatory is basically, let me describe it to you in my words, it's better than hell and worse than heaven. It's not good because you suffer there. You're suffering. You're in pain. You're in difficulty. You're, you're, you're sort of burning off your sins. It is another result of having a gospel of works to get saved. Because what if you're, like, you're, you're saved-ish, you know, but you're not quite good enough to get to heaven? What happens? You go to purgatory. This is why, if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral, as I've been to many, they say, let us assist them with our prayers. Speaking of the deceased. This is why they do mass for the dead. Usually if a Catholic dies, they want them, people to do a mass for them after they've died. This is to try to help them get out of purgatory quicker. This grants something called indulgences. In fact, all these things are indulgences. Indulgences are just ways of getting grace through doing good things that the Catholic Church likes. Now, what verse do they use to support purgatory? Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.26 That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Oh, excuse me, verse 27. That he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So then it goes, oh, doesn't Jesus want us to be holy and without blemish? Are you holy and without, are you really ready for heaven? Are you ready to be in the presence of God? And so he needs to cleanse you and sanctify you. Yet, that ignores verse 26 that says that this happens by the washing of the water by the word. That this sanctification is not purified paying for my sins. It's just me growing in Christ. It happens through the scriptures. It happens through the ministry of God's word. It's happening right now. This is sanctification. It's a washing. It's not a burning. There's a difference. The other passage they use is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Basically, this is talking about the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ that believers will face and that each one of us, our work will be tested to see what kind of work it was. Did I really labor with like wood, hay, straw, stubble, or gold, or precious things? And then the work will be tested. The reason why this is not purgatory is because believers aren't judged. Their works are judged. It's a one-time analysis. It is not an ongoing process. And the purpose is reward, not, not this burning my character, bad character qualities out. And the statement, as through fire, is in the passage. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Yet, can I say this? It didn't say, he himself will be saved through fire. That's why it says as through fire. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a simile, a like or as, not an actually is type thing. But you would never read this and come up with the doctrine of purgatory. You would just come up with the idea that, that all the things I've done for Christ in order to receive reward, God's going to cast off the stuff that I did that was not really for Christ or that was not done with right heart or right ways. 
And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I don't, want to, I don't want to carry that stuff with me. I'm glad that that'll be gone. But that's not a burning of myself to cleanse my character. Evangelicals, we believe that the doctrine of purgatory is man-made. It's an invention that denies the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross because the Bible teaches that Christians are immediately upon death in the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says that for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21 through 23, Paul talks about his desire to depart and be with Christ. He's like, oh, I want to depart and be with Christ because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But to be honest, purgatory sounds a lot worse than living here on this earth. Jude 24 says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Hebrews 10, 14, I'll read this again, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If ever there was a person in the Bible that deserved to go to purgatory, if there was such a place, it would have been the thief on the cross next to Jesus. It would have been this guy, right? I mean, he's a dirtbag, okay? He admits on the cross, I deserve to be here. This is not humility, this is him telling the truth. (laughs) I deserve to be here on this cross. So what does it take that you're like, that's how bad I am, I deserve to be here. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with, with me after a brief time in purgatory. No, he says in paradise. You'll be with me today in paradise, Luke 23, 43. He had just believed. He had no time to do a single good work before he breathed his last. He didn't get baptized. He didn't get confirmation. He didn't have confession. He didn't do any of these things in the Catholic Church. He just simply believed in Christ and he was with Jesus. So that is a section, uh, an edit uh, from Mike Winger's video about Roman Catholicism and some of the problems. There's a lot more to that video. It's like an hour and 20 minutes long in the the actual one. So I'll leave the link below. Uh, But I'd like to leave you with this. So beyond just the theology, which was discussed here, if you read uh, a book called Babylon Mystery Religion, Uh, There's a a part of that that says that the Roman Catholic Church reformed into, uh, I mean, sorry, the the Roman Empire reformed into the Roman Catholic Church where they, uh, where the, the emperor became the pope and they, they realized they couldn't control the Christians. They, they continued to uh, persecute them for several hundred years. And when the, when the church continued to grow, the Christians uh, continued to multiply. Despite all that, they thought, well, maybe if we become, a, you know, if uh, Constantine becomes a Christian, he's able, he would be able to rule them that way. Now, there's contention or, or you know, division on whether or not this is true. So I don't know where uh, it's Ralph Wilk, Ralph. Uh, can't remember the author's name babylon mystery religion now he got a lot of his information from the two babylons by uh, alexander hislop i believe and so then the question is where did they get their information and it might have been from current uh, secret societies so i can tell you whether or not that's true the pope has way too much power as it says in in scripture First Peter 5, it says not lording it over those um, in terms of uh, church leadership. Um, so th- I think the Pope and then the priests and even a lot of Protestant churches have kind of empowered the pastor way too much. Um, and people tend to idolize and look up to a person rather than to Jesus. Um, there's elders and and you know and and things in 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 the church but that's different than like lordship um and they wouldn't use that term but they do call the pope the vicar of christ and 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 if you read their writings they have uh their authority or what they say is just as much if not higher than scripture itself now i wanted to close real quick with um the jesuits which, according to William Cooper in the William Cooper series, they are one of the secret societies, the Luciferian secret societies. And so I'll close off by reading 
their oath. I, in the presence of Almighty God and of you, my ghostly father, the superior general of the Society of Jesus, that's another word for Jesuits, founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, do by the womb of the Virgin, the matrix of God, and the rod of Jesus Christ, declare and swear that His Holiness, the Pope, is Christ's vice-regent and is the true and only head of the capital of the Catholic of Universal Church throughout the earth. I guess it's not Jesus, it's the Pope. Therefore, to my uttermost of my power, I shall and will defend this doctrine and his holiness, right and custom against all usurpers of the heretical of Protestant authority and all adherents in regard that they be usurped and heretical opposing the sacred mother church of Rome. I do further promise, uh, I'll quickly say this, the mother church of Rome, some think that the uh, Roman Catholic church is mystery Babylon and it very well could be uh, in the Bible in revelation. It calls it the mother of harlots. Um, I think it's a part of it, but I don't think it is fully it. But the Protestants, um, the Protestants mainly believed that it was the Roman Catholic Church. But I'll continue. I do further promise and declare, notwithstanding, I am dispensed with to assume any religion heretical for the propagating of the Mother Church's interest. I do further promise and declare that I will have no opinion or will of my own or any mental reservation whatsoever even as a corpse, but will unhesitantly obey each and every command that I may receive from my superiors in the militia of the Pope and of Jesus Christ. So they're kind of equating Pope and Jesus Christ there. I furthermore promise and declare that I will wage relentless war, secretly or openly, against all her heretics Protestants and liberals to extra, extirpate and exterminate them from the face of the whole earth, and that I will hang, burn, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up the stomachs and wombs of their women, and crush their infants' heads against the walls in order to annihilate forever their existence. Ex execrable race very extreme there um, and there's much more to it than what I just read but you can find the whole thing um, and I'll leave a link to it below uh, but something to keep into uh, into mind the first Jesuit Pope now is at the top uh, and they are pushing for ecumenism, I believe, um, which is uniting the Christian uh, religions, or all religions, actually, um, which I think is one of the, uh, one of the thing, plans of the uh, Antichrist system. So I'm not saying that the Roman Catholic Church is Mystery Babylon, but it is definitely a huge part of it. I think Mystery Babylon has many different sections and and uh, and things that are often at war with each other, but they all have the same goal and and under the same Luciferian philosophy. So, all right, that is all. There's a lot more to be. You know, this is just kind of a, you know, the surface of of the whole thing. But um, I hope this makes you think about it. And we will continue with more apostasy uh, episodes after this one. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I am your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16 18. Pride goeth before destruction. <laughs>